How are you guys doing? Good? Just okay? So the past couple weeks, how many of you have been here? So Pastor Jared was talking about running a race and uh, running our race and, and what that looks like. And I'm going to kind of talk about that and talk about, I wanted to talk about a whole bunch of different people and look at how they ran their race. And with the reality of everything, I realized we can probably only look at one person just because of the time frame, because it's such a big topic that we're going to look at tonight. But I want to talk about people who ran their race, but in the context of revival. And because that's just such a meaty topic and such a, a, a large topic, we're only going to look at one person um, in the context of revival. Um, but I'm going to set this up a little bit and just kind of give you an idea of, of where we're going. So Pastor Jared was talking about running a race, and we all have a race to run. And there's a lot that we can learn from other people's races and other, what other people have done with their faith. And, and I want to look at, at one particular person today. I don't know why I picked this person. There are so many people that we could have looked at today, tonight, whatever. And um, that's just where we landed. But in, in the context of revival, if you want an interesting subject to study, look at the history of revival, church revival, the history of church revival, and go back as far as you possibly can. And you will find that all throughout history of man, through every generation, not just recently, not just 1800s, but going all the way back, there has always been some type of revival. There has always been some type of movement of God, and there's always been a, a person or a group of people who have kind of come to the surface that have been like the, the forerunners of this, this movement. But all throughout the generations, and even right now, there have been times of revival. And I want to just take a minute before we get going, two things actually before we get going, can I, be, can I be kind of transparent with you a minute? Is that cool? I don't have to be. I got one okay <laughs> from Shane. Okay, Shane. It's good. All right. Hey, there we go. There we go. Um, so this is the weirdest thing. So like today, as I was preparing for this message, I have had so much confusion and chaos. Just weird. Like even I was texting my wife and I was like, Confusion and chaos is not our portion. I'm speaking against it. And, you know, eventually I got through the day and, and I'm here and we'll see how it turned out. But um, as I was thinking about it, I, I, God was just wanting me to ask, you know, this might be a bigger theme going on for the day. So um, before we move forward, have any of you experienced that today? Like just confusion, chaos, can't think. Um, things come in. Keep your hands up, please. Keep, can't, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. We're going to pray for that first before we even get going, okay? So if nobody raised their hand, y'all, we're going to pray for me. So this is good. You're, you're, in, you're in my boat. I'm not in that boat anymore. Um, I had some breakthrough, but let's go after that a minute because that is so frustrating. When you know that God is not a God of confusion and chaos, he's a God of order, and yet you've got all these pesky little things trying to come in, it's just like, what is this? This is a bunch of crap, that's what it is. So let's just, let's just pray against that, and, and um, if you've had a, a peachy, awesome day, 
then uh, use that, that power to believe with us and, and come against whatever it is that's going on. So God, we thank you right now that um, we can just stand on your promise and your truth that you are not a God of chaos. You are a God of order. You are a God of peace. And so we just speak that forth right now. Whatever it is that's going on, whatever is causing this uh, lack of clarity, whatever's causing the distraction, we just come against it now in the name of Jesus. Devil, whatever it is that you're trying to do, ultimately you're trying to get our eyes off of Jesus and it's not going to work. So we choose to set our focus to Jesus tonight and from this point forward. Holy Spirit, I just ask for an overflow, an outpouring of your peace in here. God, I thank you for clarity of mind. Speak that forth. And God, I thank you that the situations that we're trying to cause confusion and chaos, I speak into those situations and and I thank you that you're going to bring order to those situations. God, I thank you that problems on the job, there's answers and solutions. So I thank you that you're giving those solutions to the people that are having those problems right now. God, I thank you that um, the stirring in the households that got stirred up, God, I thank you that after tonight and after this prayer, that as we enter our homes, as we go home, that we walk back in with your peace, with your presence. We just claim every life in here for the kingdom of God and we say no more, no more confusion, no more chaos. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now let's get to the message. So talking about revival a little bit, but before we get into it, I want to define that, especially for the sake of this conversation. So how many of you have ever heard the term revival? Okay, most of us have heard the term revival, but we all kind of have a different idea, a different understanding of what revival is. We've heard people say, you know, let's pray, Lord, send revival. Well, what does, that, what does that mean to you? That could mean something completely different. When I say revival, that could mean that, well, actually, when I say the word revival, you could be thinking about a food court in Chicago, because there is one. I was reading a headline as I was, as I was doing some research for this message. I read a, highland, or a highlight, and it said, Minneapolis is hungry for revival. And I was like, yes! And I clicked on it, and it's revival... Um, southern kitchen they're hungry for the fried chicken and, and so I'm like okay that's that's not the revival we're talking about um, so there's all kinds of ideas when it comes to this word revival and in the context that we're using it in tonight I'm going to define that for you first of all Webster's dictionary uh, just a very very simple definition of revival it says an improvement in the condition or strength of something so improvement, recovery, rallying, picking up, uh, turn for the better, upturn, upswing, resurgence. I love that word, resurgence. I bet Carrie loves it too. Carrie, like, she smiled. Okay, good. Um, or an instance of something becoming popular, active, or important again. That's key, important again. A comeback, reestablishment, reintroduction, restoration, reappearance, resurrection, regeneration, rejuvenation. Tim Keller, who is a really good Bible teacher, um, this is his definition of what revival is in the context of the church. 
He said revival is three things. And he said uh, it, it makes every pastor drool to hear this. And he said revival is when sleepy Christians wake up, when nominal Christians are actually finally converted, and when hardcore people are attracted to the new beauty and the boldness of the church leading them to Christ. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about revival. I'm talking about when something happens, usually sparked by one person or a group of people, where sleepy Christians wake up, where nominal Christians are converted, meaning people who are just doing things based upon um, tradition or people are doing things just because that's, that's what we do. We go to church. Um, it's, it's when those people actually get it and it, they make that decision and they're converted and there's nothing that you can say that will take that back. And when he says hardcore people, he's just talking about people that aren't saved. But with, when you look at, at revival in the context of, of church history, there were some hardcore people that were seeing a new beauty to the church. They were seeing a boldness of the church and that led them to Christ. That's what led them to Christ. And so we're talking about running the race, but running the race and looking at one person, how he ran the race in the context of revival. And we're going somewhere with this, so just, just bear with me. But it's just, it's so fun to look at what some people went through and what some people had to do in order for us to even be here. And I guarantee you, um, this, this person that we're going to be talking about tonight, his name is Charles Finney, um, I guarantee you that part of the reason why we're standing here and we're hearing what we're hearing is because of some of the things that, that this guy did. Now, Charles Finney was, was really interesting um, for those of you, have, how many of you have heard the name Finney before? Okay, cool. So most of you have heard the name. Some of you haven't. But for those of you, just to kind of give you an idea of where he comes in the picture of church history, there was something that happened here in, in, in America. It was called the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. Um, and it was a time of revival. And Charles Finney actually came onto the scene during the second awakening in our country, the second Great Awakening. And he was born in 1792. And he lived until 1875. But what was interesting with, with Finney was this guy, he eventually started studying law. And he was going to become a lawyer. But back then, the nation, everything that had to do with law was based upon biblical scripture. So as he was studying for law, as he was studying to become a lawyer, everything that he was reading was scriptural based because our country, believe it or not, was, was birthed on scripture. Um, there are some things that don't look like that now, but back then everything was based on scripture. That's how our nation was birthed. So as he's studying for law and he's reading law, everything's based upon the Bible. And so he says, I have to find the original source of what it is that I'm studying. And so he gets a Bible and he starts looking at the Bible. Now, he was also a churchgoer, but he was a non-believer. Go figure. 
He wasn't saved. That's the way they say it. He wasn't saved. But back then, church was just about routine. It was just about tradition. It was, this is what we do on Sunday. We go to church. So here's Finney, who's studying law, and he's learning the Bible through his law study, but he's going to church, and he's seeing the two things. They don't compare. They don't add up. And so what would happen is the preacher would preach, and because the fruit of what the preacher was saying wasn't lining up what he was reading with in the Bible, he would debate with the preacher, and he actually was a non-believer in what the preacher was saying. That's crazy if you think about it, but that was the state that the church was in at the time. So I even heard one story as I was, as I was learning about him where the preacher of the church, the pastor of the church, would actually go to Finney's law firm, his law office, and Finney would tell him everything that he said wrong in the sermon. But he's, he's looking at the Bible and he's saying, like, this is not making sense. So I don't care what you say, you're not going to convert me. I am not going to be converted no matter what you say. And he was actually referred to as unsaved Finney. And he had his little group of cronies that were like, yeah, if Finney's strong and, and, and he's a strong guy, he knows the Bible, and, and we're standing behind this guy. If Finney doesn't get converted and, and he's standing for this, this position of not being converted, we're all standing with him too. We're not going to be converted either. And it became a saying and it became a target of the church that if you can convert Finney, that's the key. That's the key. But he wasn't, he was, he was reading this, he was reading this, and then he was seeing the fruit of the church, and he was saying, I, I don't want your prayers. Your prayers aren't doing anything. So I don't want your conversion. It's not making sense. So this caused him to eventually get to a point to where he cried out to God and he locked himself in a room. He went away and, and he, he wanted to get with God and he said, okay, I'm settling this thing once and for all and I am going to encounter this God. And he did. He encountered God in a way that completely changed his life and it changed the church scene for the history of the church. Now this man had a strong sense of what race it was that he was supposed to run because he made some really, really hardcore deals with God. He told him that he would preach for him if he made himself real to him. He had this agreement with God. So it was very clear the race that Finney wanted to run. And the interesting thing about Finney is he kind of had to do his own thing. And that's so true with us sometimes, too, because we may be the only believer in a certain situation. We may be the only believer, the only one listening to God in the context of the group of people that we're in or the street that we're walking down or the store that we're in. And there may be something that happens that causes us to have to look different than everything else. And, and with Finney, what happened with him was there were really two sides of the church that, that were two camps of the church that were attacking him from both sides. And then he had non-believers in the heathens, if you want to say it that way, that were attacking him as well. So one side of the church was saying that you can't choose to come to God. God chooses who 
he saves. So you can't choose whether or not you want to be saved. God chooses who's saved. So you got that side of the church, and then you got the other side of the church that says you can't use words like you and hell in the same sentence. Like, they pretty much didn't want to believe that hell was real. And so you've got those two camps, and Finney's in the middle, believing the things that we believe. And then you've got the non-believers also that are ready to tar and feather this guy and run him out of town. Because that's the way they rolled back then. So here he is. He has a real encounter with God. He knows that God's real. And he says, he makes a stand, I'm going to run this race. I'm going to run this race because I know, God, you are real. But everything else around him was trying to shut him down. But here's some things that look different about him. And, and this is why people wanted to shut him down. He allowed women to pray in mixed public meetings. That didn't happen. He had a pew at the front of the church where those who felt a special urgency about their salvation could sit. So like if people showed up and they sensed the presence of God was telling them to get right, there was like this emergency pew in the front. And it, and, and it signified that they wanted to get right with God. I think that was like baby steps to the first altar call. <laughs> you know what I mean? That wasn't done before. Because of his preaching and because of his teaching, shopkeepers, they would close their businesses and they would post notices urging people to attend his meetings because of the things that were happening. One of the biggest pinnacles of his career was reached in Rochester, New York. He preached 98 sermons between um, September 10th and of one year and March 6th. So, so 98 sermons within about a year time frame less than a year time frame. And here's what happened during that time frame. The population of the town increased by two-thirds during this time, but the crime dropped by two-thirds over the same period. See, now this was a result of Finney knowing the race that he needed to run. He knew the truth. He had met God. He had an encounter with God. And because of his persistence, because of what he knew he needed to do, he started seeing these results. Finney was referred to as the father of modern revivalism. He paved the way for people like Dwight Moody, Billy Sunday, and Billy Graham. We all pretty much know who Billy Graham is, but because of Finney and some of the things that, that Finney did. Finney did things completely different, and he was okay with it. He recognized that, that one of the keys to revival was, was prayer. And it wasn't just a prayer that was based upon selfish motives of people. It was prayer based upon the spiritual condition of the people of the area that they were going into. So he understood the importance of prayer. So what he would do is he would actually send a team ahead of time to a certain area that they were going to go to. And this team was, was hidden. You didn't, you didn't know much about them. And, and actually, a lot of people don't ever hear this guy's name. One of the guys' name was Daniel Nash. 
Daniel Nash was a part of this, this prayer team, and they would go into the area like weeks in advance, and they would literally just groan and moan, and they would get a sense of the, the spiritual condition of the people in the area. And out of that agony and out of that, that, that heart that God had for these people, that's where their prayer came from. That's where their prayer came from. And so we understood the importance of that type of prayer, that that travailing prayer. No one else was really doing that. They were all praying from from a standpoint of whining about their situations. But Finney understood the importance of prayer. And even so much so, I heard that after Daniel Nash died and that that prayer team didn't exist, um, Finney's time in the pulpit was done. Very interesting. So as, as Finney would preach, Nash would go into the nearby houses. He would get there to the area and, and, and they, would, they would pray in the nearby houses while Finney was preaching. But as a result, the Holy Spirit showed up in amazing ways. Truly amazing ways. People who were just consumed by alcohol, consumed by the wrong way of living, consumed by anger and hatred, literally showed up to Finney's meetings to kill him. But because of the power and the presence of God and because of the word, he did not back off of the word. He, he preached words like Sodom and Gomorrah, you guys are going to hell. But it was under the power of the Holy Spirit. All because he understood the race that it was that he needed to run. He was set on that race that he needed to run. He understood what God was calling him to do. And he was okay with things looking different. And it's so interesting. Listen to this quote. This is Daniel Nash. This was his, his prayer warrior that he had along with him. Listen, you, you couldn't even make this up. This is his quote talking about running the race. He says, when Mr. Finney and I began our race, we had no thought of going amongst ministers. Our highest ambition was to go where there was neither minister or reformation and try to look up the lost sheep for whom no man cared. We began and the Lord prospered. But we go into no man's parish unless called. We have room enough to work and work enough to do. So even Nash referred to it as a race. They knew the race that they were called to run. And I love that. It said they didn't even start, they didn't even want to go amongst the ministers. They wanted to go to where no man would go. And the interesting thing was that's where they started, but eventually it moved to the high class, to the upper class, the businessmen. But God took the weak and the unfavorable and did something there and made it look very attractive for those who would be considered more favored. Isn't that just like God, to use something simple? One of the coolest stories, and then we'll we'll move on from this, but one of the coolest stories that I heard as I was, as I was just doing some research in this was a story of when, when Finney traveled to a town and he walked into a cotton mill. And I'm just going to read some of this. 
So he, he walked into this cotton mill, and one of the opponents of what he was doing worked at this cotton mill. She was a young lady. She was an employee. And when she saw him, she started looking at her, her um, fellow employees, and she began to laugh. And some people say that she started making cynical remarks about Finney. And Charles Finney simply looked at this young lady without saying a single word. Just looked at her. And as he kept looking at her, he began to grieve. He was grieved by her criticism. And the lady stopped working, and she had broken her thread. She became so upset because she broke her thread that she couldn't repair the thread and start again. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God mightily convicted her of her sin to the point that she began to weep. So think about this. Here this man walks into a factory of about 3,000 people. He knows the call of God that's on his life. God is so real and evident to him. And he's standing in the face of a mocker. And he's tr- and she's trying to get other people to jump in and just continue in on this mocking. And he doesn't feel the need to defend himself because he knows the race that he's supposed to run. He just stands there and looks at her. That's self-control. So she starts weeping. And soon, all of her companions were convicted and started weeping as well. A chain reaction occurred as hundreds began to be overcome by their lost condition. The factory owner saw all of this. All of this was going on. So the factory owner sees this, and he was deeply moved himself. And this is what he said. He said, stop the mill. And let the people attend to religion. For it is far more important than our souls be saved than the factory run. That's awesome. All the workers were assembled in a large room. And Finney said, a more powerful meeting I scarcely ever attended. Within a few days, nearly every employee was saved. And some accounts actually say that every single person was saved. And there were about 3,000 employees in this factory. That's wild. That's awesome. That's crazy. That's something that only God can do. In that moment, that was a moment of revival. In that moment, that moment of revival happened because one man knew the race that he was supposed to run. That's awesome. That is so cool. That's something to get excited about. And the reason why I think it's something to get excited about is because that's something that can happen today. See, these guys, these, these greats in, in the history of the church, the, the Finneys, the Moody's, and even coming into today a little bit closer, you have like A.A. A. Allen and, and um, Jack Cole and, and um, just all of the, the healing revival, Oral Roberts and, and all those guys that were part of the healing movement. All of those guys were a part of something. They were part of a revival, but, but the revival didn't stop with them. What they did, they actually paved the way for you and I. In the, in, in the way God is working now, it's not the man of the hour. It's the men. It's the women of the day. Back then, it was one man that surfaced. But because that one man surfaced and the things that were accomplished, it set things into motion so that now today it can be this entire room of men and women 
that changed the course of church history. It's something to get excited about because when you think about the very essence of why revival even happens, it boils down to this concept. And if you could put the one verse, I, I, I promise you I have scripture for this tonight. It's official. It's official church. I have scripture. Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is Old Covenant. This is Old Testament. This is God saying that I want to dwell with my people and I want a sanctuary to dwell in. But we are now in the new covenant and that sanctuary is me and you. Revival happens because it gets people to a place to where they can be revived. When we're revived, God can live with us. When God lives with us and we're revived and receive him, we become transformed. Revival leads to transformation. When we're transformed, that's a result of God living in us. But that's not the end point. The end point is reformation. So revival, transformation, reformation. And reformation means that God's living with us. He's living in us and then he's living upon us so that as we go out, we can reform the things around us to look the way that he wants them to look. But revival boils down all to that key concept right there. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God is just looking for a place to dwell. He's looking for a place to dwell and he uses people who know their race, who know the race that they're called to run, so that they can prepare that dwelling place for him, for other people, so that they can prepare an atmosphere for sleepy Christians to wake up, for nominal Christians to be converted, for hardcore people to be attracted to the new beauty and boldness of the church, leading them to Christ. It's all about his presence. It's all about his presence. And that's why God has created us to know him, to dwell with him. And sometimes we get so far away from that point that it takes things like revival in order to get us back to that point. But it's all about his presence. Now next week, we're going to talk about something even greater than revival. And it's how to live a continually revived life because that's greater than needing revival, living a revived life. But tonight, where I want to stop is understanding just everything that we're talking about and how it all boils down to the point of his presence and him wanting to dwell with us. I want to camp there, and that's where we're going to end tonight. But I, I love this. I was watching an interview, and it was uh, Todd White was being interviewed by somebody, and um, he was with Michael Koulianos. And... Um, this guy was talking about the context of revival, and he, he asked this question, and he said, I'm not trying to be silly with this question. He said, but in, in all revival context, everything is boiled down to the presence of God. And this was his question to Todd and Michael. He said, why is the presence of God so important? And for those of you who know Todd White, this is, this is funny, and this is so Todd. 
but he just starts thinking about the very presence of God. And, and the question was directed to him first, you know, why is the presence of God so important? And he's like, oh, man. He's like, looks over to Michael and he says, you better take this because I'm about to cry. <laughs> the very thought of the presence of God and what that means in his life brought him to tears. And what Michael said completely blew me away. And it's like, drop the mic. You don't even need to say anything further. So the question was, why is the presence of God important? Todd couldn't answer it because he started thinking about the presence and started crying. Michael says, when you understand that the presence of God is God, then the question is really, why is God important? When you understand that the presence of God is God himself, then the question really is, why is God important? Revival boils down to the presence of God and him wanting to dwell with us. And if the very presence of God is God, revival boils down to, God just wants to be with you. And I can tell you from that point, from that very point of God being with you nonstop, 24-7, with God constantly being at the forefront of everything that you do, from that point, you can run that race that Pastor Jared was talking about the past two weeks. And that is the best place to run that race from. So here's what I want to do tonight before we leave Going back to Tim Keller's reference of of revival. Revival is sleepy Christians waking up, nominal Christians being converted, and hardcore people, we'll just say people who don't know God, being attracted to the new beauty and boldness of the church, leading them to Christ. If there is anyone here, actually, you know what, I'm just going to have you close your eyes. This is between you and God. Let's go into a time of, of just prayer for a moment. If there's anyone here tonight that would say, you know what, if I'm real with myself, if I'm really real with myself, and I consider myself a sleepy Christian that needs to be woken up, then tonight I'm here to tell you the alarm is sounding. It's time to wake up. If you're a person that says, that I come to church, I do some of the churchy things, I know some of the churchy words, I can say yes and amen, I know some songs, but this just isn't real. I don't know why I'm doing it. My mom and dad did it, so I do it, or, or this is something that good people do, so I do it. If, if you would say that you're a nominal Christian and you need a serious conversion, I'm here to tell you that tonight that can happen. And if you're here tonight and you, you have no idea what I'm talking about, you've never heard of this guy named Finney, and you're like, you sound like my history teacher from school and I'm about falling asleep, that's cool. It's okay. 
if you don't know God, it's as simple as saying to him, God, I want to know you. Something about what's going on tonight is real to me. I can't pinpoint it, but God, make yourself real. So if any of you are in any three of those categories, I'm just going to pray a simple prayer and just pray it, believe it, the way that, that you need to. Because I want you to walk out of here not in one of those three categories. So Father, I thank you that those that would consider themselves sleepy Christians, Father, I thank you that right now you are waking up, you are reviving them right now in a way that is going to lead to continued transformation, in a way that's going to lead to them never falling asleep again. God, I thank you right now. I say, wake up. Wake up. Jesus is calling you. It's time to wake up and run your race. God, speak to them tonight as they leave this place. And people who are just doing this out of a routine, who are just coming to church, it's not that they're bad people. But Father, this needs to be real to them. What your son did on the cross needs to be real to them. And tonight they're saying, tonight I make the decision, no going back. I do not want to be a nominal Christian. Tonight is the night for my conversion. Tonight is the night that I am truly saved. Tonight is the night that I receive Jesus. God, for those people, I thank you that you hear their prayer and they're made right with you. And God, for anyone in here that doesn't know you, who's never even prayed to you before, God, as they just simply ask you to make yourself real to them tonight, God, I thank you that you're honoring that that you're showing them something new that they've never seen before. And before we leave, for everyone in here, God, I pray that the very thought of your presence would cause every single one of us to weep understanding the power and the magnitude of what that means. God, I pray that every one of us in here would experience your presence in a way that causes us to weep, in a way that causes us to recognize your goodness. God, this is not a normal message tonight. But I believe everything was spoken to get us to this very point right here, right now. Focused on your presence. Focused on you. So God, we thank you that you're here right now. We thank you that you want to dwell with us. We thank you that you want to dwell within us. are drawn to because of you in us. God, may we be a people that are so set on the race that, that you've given us that we're not afraid of people on each side mocking us, that we're not afraid of those who are wanting to tar and feather us. 
with their words or thoughts. God, I pray that this challenges all of us, even me, to just want to draw nearer to you, to look like you, to smell like you, to think like you, to talk like you, to not needing moments of revival, but living from a place of being truly revived. So God, we thank you tonight. As we leave, we thank you that your presence goes with us. That is key. It's not just here in this building. It goes with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.